Bounds of Love, Chapter 3 Where to Draw the Lines If we are going to assert that the Old Testament Judicial Code contains some laws which are still morally binding upon civil governments today, then we need to be able to say which ones still apply, which ones do not, and why. This chapter will discuss the basic principles by which these needs are answered and outline the terms of continuity and discontinuity between the law in the Old and New Testaments. Continuity and Discontinuity In general, Old Testament laws continue into the New Testament unless the New Testament explicitly repeals them. But we must be very careful here. The New Testament does not mention every Old Testament law that it repeals by explicit references to each individual one. Instead, in different ways we learn that types or classes of laws are annulled or transformed in Christ, and thus many unspecified laws are repealed as well. On the other hand, we must also acknowledge that many laws must continue in New Testament times as well. We can see the principles of continuity and discontinuity clearly in specific passages. Hebrews 7.12 says that, quote, When there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Unquote. From this it may appear that once Jesus came, the entire law was thrown out. But this misunderstanding would not only be absurd, as we have already rehearsed in regard to Galatians 3 in chapter 2 above, it is clearly contradicted in the very next chapter of the same book. Hebrews 8.10, quoting Jeremiah, clearly declares that God will actually write His law on believers' hearts in the New Covenant era. Quote, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Unquote. From these two passages alone, we must deduce that some of the laws have changed or been abrogated altogether and yet some of it continues. Thus, the New Testament expresses both continuity and discontinuity with Old Testament law in general. The question is, how do we learn which laws are which? Which ones are discontinued? Which ones continue? And how do we know? Biblical Principles of Interpretation The basic question to be answered is this. What aspects of Old Testament law pertained only to Old Covenant Israel? And which ones are universal? For the whole world and all times? The answer to this question must be biblical, and the principle we use to answer it must also be biblical. We already began to address this question in our discussion about non-binding commandments, the quote shadows, unquote, and the quote weak and beggarly elements of the law, unquote. In chapter 2, we saw that what the New Testament explicitly repeals are what are commonly called, quote, ceremonial, unquote, laws. Galatians, Colossians, and Hebrews make clear that Christ has replaced the Old Covenant temple, priesthood, Sabbaths, and sacrifices. When Hebrews says that a change in the priesthood necessitates a change in the law, it is speaking specifically about the law of the priesthood, all of the laws that were tied to the old Aaronic priesthood system. But there is another New Testament change that is equally important, the separation laws. 
These are rarely discussed under these terms, but they are crucial to understanding discontinuity in the New Testament. The set of laws were just like the Old Testament priesthood in some regards. It imposed temporary, outward, symbolic aspects upon God's Old Testament people. Also, like the priestly laws, there is a clear and obvious end for them with the coming of Jesus Christ, and on this, Scripture is explicit. So what are these separation laws? They include laws pertaining to bloodlines and the land, both of which are intimately connected. They were all the laws imposed on Israel which were meant to show outwardly that God's old covenant people were separate from the rest of the nations, and also that the tribes were to be separate from each other. Both of these aspects are equally important, and both begin with the promises made to Abraham. God called Abraham out from among the nations and promised him that through his seed, God would bless all the families of the earth. Genesis 12, 1-3 God promised that this blessing would come through Abraham's seed. Genesis 12, 7 Paul makes it clear that this promise was not made to all the descendants, plural, or Abraham, but to one particular seed, Christ. He writes, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, quote, and to offsprings, unquote, referring to many, but referring to one, quote, and to your offspring, unquote, who is Christ. Galatians 3.16 Paul follows this by explaining that the Mosaic Law was added to the promises specifically to guard this offspring or seed. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Galatians 3.19 Note a couple of things. First, by quote the law, unquote here again, Paul does not mean the whole of the law. He is speaking only of the part that was temporary for the Old Covenant people. For obvious reasons, we have already covered. Secondly, therefore, we see that there was a clear terminus for this part of the law. It was to last only until the time that the promised seed, Christ, would come. After that point, the laws of bloodline separation were no longer needed, for they had performed their purpose to illustrate to the tribes of Israel and to the world that God's promise to Abraham was to come to pass through the physical bloodline of Abraham. It also served a second purpose, which demanded not only separation of Jews from Gentiles, but of the tribes of Israel from each other as well. This was the, quote, seed, unquote, promise made to Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Genesis 49.10 This famous prophecy indicated that the promised seed would come, not only through Abraham in general, but through Judah specifically. It had to be kept separate, therefore. There were yet other reasons to keep the tribes separate. The tribe of Levi were separated for priestly and temple work. They were separated by God himself for special service in Israel. There were a tremendous array of laws tied to these principles of separation. Jews were not allowed to marry Gentiles. The tribes were generally not supposed to intermarry with each other. 
All the laws of ritual separation fall under this category. The prohibitions against mixed breeding of animals, mixed seeds planted in the same field, and of wearing clothing made of a mixture of linen and wool. Leviticus 19.19 The laws pertaining to a male ejaculation and those requiring a woman to separate herself during menstruation. Leviticus 15 The laws of Leverite marriage. Deuteronomy 25.5-10 Perhaps the ultimate law in this category was that of circumcision. It was a literal bloodline law which symbolized that the seed was to pass through the blood, but also was a mark against the flesh of human generation. This symbolized that the salvation of God's people would not come by man's works or through man's product. It would come only by faith in God's promise. Once that salvation came in Christ, there was no longer need for this mark, as Galatians argues so clearly. Also, part of the separation laws were all of the laws tied to the land of Israel. This was yet one more set of boundaries to keep Israel separate from the nations and to keep the tribes separate from each other until Christ would come. The allotment of the land was by tribe and family, and it was to stay in the particular tribe and family to which it was assigned. Numbers 33, 56-9 this allotment was performed faithfully by Joshua, Joshua fifteen twenty one. The laws of inheritance kept the land within the family. The laws for Levirate marriage were designed to ensure that the family name would continue in the land. The laws of redemption, and especially of jubilee, Leviticus 25, ensured that allotments would always eventually return to the original families. In some cases, these laws were also intimately connected with the priestly laws. For example, the laws of separation for quarantine, Leviticus 14, and of ritual impurity, Leviticus 15, required ritual cleansings or sacrifices attended or performed by a priest. Likewise, we can see composites of land law, blood guilt, and priesthood tied together in the law of the corpse in open country. Deuteronomy 21, 1-9, and the laws for the cities of refuge, Numbers 35, 6-34. Likewise, the laws of indentured servitude and lifetime slavery of Gentiles were tied to the separation laws, Sabbath laws, and laws of inheritance, repealed and replaced in Christ. All of these, and many more like them, were to last only until the coming of Christ. They served their purpose of illustrating principles of holiness in outward, earthly forms. These forms were the schoolmaster or guardian, imposed for a time until the promised seed should come. Christ replaced the Old Testament priesthood. The entire temple, sacrificial, and sabbatical system is superseded by Christ. This is the message of the book of Hebrews, as we have already seen. Christ has fulfilled these in such a way as to bring about their terminus, which God had always planned. Therefore, all of those laws and all of the laws and aspects of laws tied to them are fulfilled and their use discontinued. These shadows have vanished and passed away. Hebrews 8.13 The body of Christ is now the temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16 
Ephesians 2, 19-22, 1 Peter 2, 4-10. Christ is now our Sabbath rest, Hebrews 3-4. Christ likewise so fulfilled the separation laws tied to seeds and bloodlines. These have reached their terminus in Christ also. Inheritance of the promise is now no longer symbolized by circumcision and by the various laws pertaining to it in Moses, but by baptism. This is what Paul teaches. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Galatians 3, 27-29 Thus you can see also that all the, quote, seed laws, unquote, of bloodlines and physical separations are gone, as well as the types of inheritances and slavery tied to them. Christ broke down the wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles and made the two into one new man. Ephesians 2:11-22 The separation now is between Christians and non-Christians, and thus they are forbidden to intermarry or otherwise be unequally yoked. 2 Corinthians 6:14-18 We no longer enter covenant with God through bloodline, but by adoption. The sons of God are not physical sons, but adopted sons and Christ has been given the authority to make them sons. But to all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 1, 12-13 Likewise, Christ is the terminus of the land laws. He is the fulfillment of Jubilee, Luke 4, 16-21 God's indwelling presence is now in the hearts and bodies of Christians. 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 6, 19-20 Ephesians 2, 19-22 1 Peter 2, 5 Not the building or the land. The old boundaries of the land of Israel are no longer special boundaries of God's judging presence. In the old covenant, the land acted as an agent of God's wrath. The people's sins were counted also to have made the land sin. Deuteronomy 24.4 It would vomit out the inhabitants for their disobedience. Leviticus 18.25, 28, 20, 22. The function of judging in history and of, quote, vomiting out, unquote, is now transferred to the enthroned Christ himself. Revelation 3:16 The focus of the people of God is no longer physical Jerusalem but heavenly Galatians 4:21 through 31 Revelation 21:1 through 8 The land promise of inheritance is also universalized it now includes gentiles and it now covers the whole earth Christ received all power in heaven and on earth Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, The Psalms prophesied that the believers would, quote, inherit the earth, unquote. Psalms 25, 13, 37, 9, 11, and 22. Jesus affirmed this by repeating it in the Sermon on the Mount, 
Matthew 5, 5. Consequently, he taught us to pray that God's kingdom would come and his will be done on earth. Matthew 6, 10. Hebrews then tells us that as believers, we have arrived at the inheritance, Mount Zion, heavenly Jerusalem. Hebrews 12, 22-24. When Paul repeats the land promise made to Abraham, he universalizes it. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, cosmos, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Romans 4, 13. The inheritance of God's people is no longer just a symbolic strip between Egypt and the Euphrates River. It is now the earth, the world. Thus, even the aspects of the Ten Commandments, which were originally tied directly to the land, then given to Israel, are universalized and generalized in the New Testament. Consider the command to obey one's parents. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Exodus twenty twelve. When Paul restates this in Ephesians, he leaves off the last part of the promise, which pertains specifically to the Jews. Quote, Honor your father and mother, unquote. This is the first commandment with a promise. Quote, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land, unquote. Ephesians 6, 2-3. Keep in mind also that this commandment is here being applied to that, quote, one new man, unquote. Paul had just described earlier in the same letter, Ephesians two fifteen made of both Jews and Gentiles. In short, the New Testament teaches that all laws pertaining to the Old Covenant priesthood, bloodline separations, and land laws reach their terminus in Jesus Christ. They no longer continue in the New Testament. The Karim Principle The principle of Karim is perhaps the most significant aspect of discontinuity for our discussion. It is here precisely where general statements about continuity lead to many raised eyebrows. Do you mean all those death penalties would be brought back for blasphemy, for apostasy, for idolatry, for adultery? Ironically, even our best past authors have provided little direct discussion of modern application of these penalties. So this section of this book may in fact be its most important contribution. Karam means, quote, devoted, unquote, in the sense of devoted wholly unto the Lord. In the instances most relevant to our discussion, it means specially devoted to destruction. To be devoted unto the Lord in this sense means to be separated from holiness of the holy land and immediately into God's holy presence for judgment. This can refer to objects such as animals being devoted to the Lord for sacrifice and given to the priest as their food and inheritance. But even here the devoted animal was to be sacrificed. This means its purpose was primarily as a substitutionary recipient of God's wrath. When in the context of a punishment for a crime against God's holiness, idolatry, paganism, etc., it meant to be put under the curse of immediate death. For this reason, Karim is often referred to as, quote, the ban, unquote. 
or in its verb form, as a command to, quote, utterly destroy, unquote, or, quote, devote to destruction, unquote, the person or objects. Karam is peculiar to the Old Testament administration because it functioned only in the context where God's presence was in the physical temple, tabernacle. In the altar fire, the land itself was holy and was an agent of sanctions, and the inheritance of God's covenant promises was through blood descent and external possession of the holy land. As we have seen, all of these realities have been drastically altered by the New Testament economy. The civil penalties based upon the Karim principle must be considered in this light as well. First, where in the Old Testament do we see this Karim principle? It appears first in Exodus 22.20, although its meaning and importance are made clearer in later verses. This first instance says, quote, Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Unquote. Here the penalty of devotion to destruction, karam, is applied to false worship. Deuteronomy elaborates on this particular crime. If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, in transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the host of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true, and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. Deuteronomy 17, 2-5 If applied in New Covenant times, this law would seem to require the death penalty for merely leaving the Christian faith. A simple apostate would, under strict application of this passage, be required to die at the hands of the state. There can be no doubt this is what it meant for Old Testament Israel. Does it still abide today? We will see in a moment. Also subject to the direct judgment as Karim were the original Canaanite tribes who were to be purged from the land. God invokes the term Karim when describing both the people and their idols, Deuteronomy 7, 2, and 26. That should be utterly destroyed. He reiterates his special devotion to destruction in the laws of warfare. Deuteronomy 20, 16-18 This inclusion is very helpful specifically because it was special and not normal even for Old Testament Israel. In ordinary warfare, rules for seeking peace, allowing tribute taxes, and protecting innocence apply. But in the Canaanite cities, quote, devoted to complete destruction, unquote, nothing and no one was to be spared. This distinction in the Mosaic Law itself shows that there was a special case already operative and temporary for those special commands that God applied under the Karim principle. Some laws were just based upon the eye-for-an-eye rule, as we shall see. Others were just based upon God's immediate judgment under Karim. 
There are other instances of carom that illustrate its distinctiveness even more clearly. Numbers 21, 1-3, relate how God answered the Israelites' prayer to place Arad, a Canaanite king, under carom. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. Hormah is derived from the word Kerem, and thus means, quote, devoted, unquote. In other words, the Israelites named this conquered territory after the principle itself. It was a memorial to God's curse upon the Canaanites and the victory wrought thereby. Similar stories are related concerning Sion, king of Heshbon, Deuteronomy 2, 30-34, and Og, king of Bashan, Deuteronomy 3, 1-6. Both instances were not normal warfare, but rather warfare against peoples who were devoted specially to destruction before the Lord. Another instance appears in the destruction of Jericho. The city and all its property were dedicated to the Lord for Kerem destruction. Achan violated Kerem property, and Israel suffered defeat for this. Joshua 7. Achan was ritually executed for his offense. Also, Saul's failure came in response to a special application of Kerem by God upon the Amalekites. 1 Samuel 15. In each case, there was a special, not normal, application of the death penalty to unbelievers or apostates. Another important instance of Kerem is found in Deuteronomy 13. This case describes the destruction of even a Hebrew city that is nevertheless led away by faithlessness or apostasy. Shall a whole city be destroyed in modern times if it follows ungodly leaders and departs from the faith? This instance is helpful in that it further clarifies the nature of Kerem, quote, devotion, unquote. In this case, in Old Testament Israel, a city had been led away by either false prophets or false worship. See Deuteronomy 13, 1-17. In such a case, the whole city was to be devoted and destroyed, including all of the property within it. All the property was to be burned specifically, quote, as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God, unquote. 13, 16. This detail is crucial. The, quote, whole burnt offering, unquote, is a reference to the ordinary substitutionary sacrifice for atonement. Leviticus 1, 9, 13, and 17. When that society had rejected the true God, however, and started to worship false gods, there remained no substitutionary sacrifice for them. The penalty that would normally fall upon the substitutionary sacrifice would now fall upon them. They themselves were therefore devoted to destruction, destroyed and burned for their apostasy. Kerem in the New Testament This principle is obviously continued in the New Testament, but with the change in temple, priesthood, and land administration comes a transfer of the seat of judgment from the earthly land to the heavenly throne of Christ. God's consuming fire is no longer on earth in an altar. It was removed. Thus, the same principle of apostasy can be declared in the New Testament. But the sanction is no longer by earthly civil government. It is from the throne of Christ, 
In light of the change from shadow to substance, Hebrews 10, 1, the book of Hebrews makes this change fairly clear. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Hebrews 10, 29 Keep in mind, the author was writing to Hebrews about the change from Old Covenant to New Covenant under Christ. The issue here would have been mass apostasy. The Hebrews who remained in unbelief after Christ would have been committing idolatry, false temple worship, and apostasy, denial that Christ had come in the flesh. Under the Mosaic administration, they would have been devoted to destruction. Exodus 22.20 Deuteronomy 13, 17, 2-5, by the civil government. The author of Hebrews acknowledges this, yet he does not prescribe a carom death penalty administered by the civil government. He prescribes an even worse judgment that will come from the throne of grace. This judgment fell in history in God's providence in A.D. 70. When Jerusalem was utterly destroyed in the greatest demonstration of Karim devotion to destruction ever. This was carried out by God himself in history, not by human civil governments, although Rome was used as God's providential agent. With the new covenant, therefore, the Karim principle is entirely changed. Its locus of authority has been removed from earth to heaven. God no longer calls upon the civil government to carry out carom penalties. He still carries them out by punishing societies for idolatry and apostasy, but he does so through Christ and through the Holy Spirit. Why this change? The discontinuity encountered in regards to the carom principle is directly related to the difference in nature of the old covenant compared to the new. Just read God's basic description of the change. For he finds fault with them when he says, quote, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more." Hebrews 8, 8 through 12, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, Hebrews 10, 15 through 18. The new covenant is specifically to be, quote, not like, unquote, the old. We know there are many differences already, but what is the fundamental difference in view here? 
The law continues, as we have noted already, but it is now written on the minds and hearts of God's people, not merely on stones and books. It is that the new covenant is administered by the Spirit from heaven, not from the letter on earth. It is also marked by permanence, whereas the Israelites broke the old covenant and God cast them away for it. This new covenant is wrought by God himself in our hearts and cannot be broken. It is also marked by the general forgiveness as opposed to the call for immediate carom death. Paul discusses the difference in precisely these terms. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. 2 Corinthians 3, 3-10 This is to hardly say that the law in its entirety is brought to an end, but to show the difference in the nature of the two covenants and their administrations. The first was a ministry of the letter and death, the latter a ministry of the spirit and life. Finally, we see this difference manifested in how the New Testament applies the principle of Karim. We have already seen it transferred from earth to heaven in Hebrews 10, 26-29. We see the same elsewhere as well. The word to look for is anathema. This is the Greek word used to translate the Hebrew word kerem in the Greek version of the Old Testament. Most of the passages we have covered use this word in the Greek version. Leviticus 27:28, Numbers 21:3, Deuteronomy 7:28, 13:16. 2017 and Joshua 7. Where it appears in the New Testament, we should consider its equivalence. Sure enough, where it appears, it generally refers to religious sanction. Romans 9 3, 1 Corinthians 12 3, 16 22, Galatians 1 8 through 9. Consider these two examples that relate directly to the first table of the law. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed, anathema, 1 Corinthians 16:22. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, anathema. As we have said before, so now I say again, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Anathema. Galatians 1, 8-9 It is clear that Paul is still applying the Karim Anathema principle in relation to the first table offenses, but the only sanction here is ecclesiastical. 
This, in itself, does not prove that the civil penalties no longer apply, but when taken together with the lessons from Hebrews, the change in the nature of administration of the covenants, and the transfer of temple, priesthood, land to Christ in heaven, it is illustrated. Which laws does Karam cover? It is my conclusion that civil governments no longer have authority to apply Karam punishments in the new covenant. So which laws does this cover? In general, these are all first table offenses. False worship, apostasy, idolatry, Exodus 22:20, Deuteronomy 13:17-2-5. Further, there can no longer be any concept of holy war. Deuteronomy 20:16-18. But the general laws of warfare abide. The Karim principle indicates that certain other death penalties related to the first table would also no longer apply. It would include laws relating directly to inheritance in the land, even when it crosses into family matters. This is why, for example, the death penalty was required for incorrigible sons, Deuteronomy 21, 18-21. While not traditionally considered so, the fifth commandment is part of the first table. It is a general principle, but was also directly tied to inheritance in the land. Under Old Testament law, a son would inherit the land by mandate, not by choice of the parents. A rebellious, incorrigible son was therefore a threat. His wicked influence and legacy was to be permanently purged, quote, from your midst, unquote, 2121. Note that this law is not said to apply to daughters, who could be just as wicked and rebellious and just as incorrigible yet could inherit the land only in rare circumstances. While the word karam is not used here, the principle is the same. The evil son was devoted to destruction to prevent the holy land and holy people from being defiled. In the New Testament, the land seed inheritance principles are all superseded. While a general principle against incorrigibility in regard to crime may still stand, The need to execute rebellious sons in this way is. In the New Covenant, the parents can, by decision, simply disinherit him, shun him, and leave him to God's judgment. The same would apply to the death penalty for an engaged woman discovered not to have been a virgin before her wedding. Such is not simply an extension of the laws against adultery. Her crime is said to be that of, quote, whoring in her father's house, unquote. Deuteronomy 22:21 Whoredom in general received no civil government sanction at all in Old Testament law. Simple prostitution had no penalty other than its own. Social disgrace, lack of inheritance for her children, lack of male protection, and bastardy of whatever sons may be born. In this case, however, the daughter had presented herself as a representative of her father and of the heirs of her future husband. Her whoredom could mean that a bastard would inherit the land. This was an abomination in Old Testament Israel because it profaned the seed and the land. The penalty here was like a karam penalty, even though the word karam is not invoked. Karam and Stoning One way it becomes clear that these first table offenses and similar offenses are akin to if not a part of, Karim law is by the prescribed method of execution, 
stoning. Popular banter about Old Testament law may lead you to think that stoning was prescribed frequently as the default death penalty and for a wide variety of offenses. Whatever the source of this impression, however, it is wrong. Sometimes the method of execution is prescribed. It could be stoning, fire, hanging, or the sword. But the majority of death penalties prescribe no particular form, only death. We cannot take this for granted as if God was random in giving such specifications. We need to look and try to understand why some are specified as opposed to others, and more importantly, what is meant by the specified forms in their particular cases. The cases specifying stoning are actually quite few. Moloch worship, including the sacrifice of infants, Leviticus 22. False worship or apostasy, Deuteronomy 13, 6-11 and 17, 5. Spirit mediums, Leviticus 20, 27. Blasphemy, Leviticus 24, 10 through 16 and 23, Sabbath breaking, Numbers 15, 31 through 36, Incorrigible rebellious sons, Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21, Engaged daughters committing whoredom in their father's house, Deuteronomy 22, 20 through 21, Fornication with an engaged daughter, Deuteronomy 22, 22 through 23. In two other specific instances, the relationship between God's holy presence and the punishment of stoning is made clearer. First, at Mount Sinai, God set a boundary at the foot of the mountain and forbid anyone to touch it upon pain of death. The penalty to be stoned with stones, Exodus 19:12-13. Secondly, for Achan's violation of Karim property, God prescribed death by stoning, Joshua 7:25. This is the full list of laws for which death by stoning is prescribed. All of them have one thing in common. They are exclusively first-table offenses or are prescribed death because of an overlap of a first-table principle. While few may not seem like first-table offenses, remember that honor of parents is a first-table offense. Likewise, the treatment of daughters was directly tied to inheritance in the land not to mention a keen image of spiritual adultery, often used by God himself. Jeremiah 3, Hosea 1, Revelation 17-18 through 18. The reason these instances receive death by stoning is because they partake of first-table principles. Other laws pertaining to sexuality do not necessarily receive the death penalty, let alone stoning and some are not even punished by the civil government at all. Why this connection between first-table offenses and stoning? Because of the basic redemptive promise of God to crush the head of the serpent. The punishment of offenses against God himself, therefore, was specially marked by crushing with stones. The crushing of the head by stones cut out with hands. Stoning was, therefore, a ceremonial aspect to the law. While there are no judicial aspects of it that continue, such as the need for involvement in executions by the accusers themselves and by the community, stoning itself was symbolic and is no longer binding. 
Thus, even when the word karam is not included in the Old Testament passage, the presence of stoning as a punishment makes clear that the principle is in effect. Karam and stoning penalties were reserved only for first-table offenses. Civil government no longer has jurisdiction over first-table offenses. These punishments as regular mandatory punishments are no longer in effect. Only in extreme or aggravated cases in which blasphemy or false worship aims to lead to revolution, sedition, terrorism, or treason would civil government intervention be appropriate. Sex and Land Seed Laws We cannot stress enough how intricately God's care and presence was tied to the priestly temple, land, separation, and inheritance laws. We have already seen how they were tied together with certain stoning penalties. There are other death penalties involved in such overlap as well. These include the death penalty for certain types of adultery, Leviticus 20.10, Deuteronomy 22.22, as well as bestiality and homosexual sodomy. It is easy to conclude that all such sexual sins resulted in the confusion or defilement of the seed or the defilement of inheritances, and were thus assigned the death penalty on such grounds, not merely on the grounds of their nature as sexual sins. We can tell in each of these cases that the death penalty was invoked, not because of the nature of the sin or crime itself, but because it occurred in overlap with these particular sacred boundaries in the Old Covenant administration. First, This is clear in the fact that while there are numerous detailed instances of such defilements specified, see Leviticus 18 and 20 for just some examples, there are yet others that are conspicuously absent. Consider, for example, the references to adultery just mentioned. One case involves a married man sleeping with a married woman, Leviticus 20.10. The other involves any man sleeping with a married woman. Deuteronomy 22.22 Each could receive the death penalty. But what of a case between a married man and an unmarried woman? There is no mention of it. Although the law regularly specifies when any particular law applies to a man, a woman, or both. The silence here is therefore evidence of a non-law. In fact, the law allowed for more than one wife, and in the case of the Levirate marriages, Deuteronomy 25, 5-6, a married man could be expected to go in unto his deceased brother's wife and cohabit. This was not only not punishable by death, it was not even considered adultery. Why not? Because in that Old Testament administration, the seed laws and inheritance laws superseded sex and marriage law in terms of the importance to the purpose of that system. We know again that the Mosaic Covenant was added to the promises of Abraham in order to ensure the promised seed would come about as promised. Galatians 3.19 This temporary addition was also tempered, quote, because of transgressions, unquote. 3.19 Jesus makes it clear that divorce and remarriage is one area where such was the case. And Pharisees came up 
and in order to test him, asked, quote, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Unquote. He answered them, quote, What did Moses command you? Unquote. They said, quote, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Unquote. And Jesus said to them, quote, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, quote, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Unquote. Mark 10, 2-12, emphasis added. Notice two things. Jesus says that the original creation mandate for marriage does not allow for divorce for any cause. Deuteronomy 24, 1-5 Allowed men to do this to wives because of hardness of heart. But this was obviously temporary. Divorce was only originally allowed due to fornication. Secondly, Jesus applies this principle to both wives and husbands. Both can now initiate a lawful divorce for lawful reasons. Altogether, this means that Jesus reinstated the original power of marriage. Divorce, for any reason, is now prohibited. But the right of divorce is now equal between men and women. The ramifications of this are profound. It is clear now that marriage is no longer tied to the old seed laws and inheritance laws, those being abolished. The fact that only certain cases of adultery which violated those laws received the death penalty indicates that the reason was not because of the adultery itself, but because of the other violations. Further, the fact that the, quote, adultery, unquote, of polygamy or Levirate marriage was not punished by death, shows the same principle. In the New Testament, however, the land, seed, inheritance rules are gone, and thus so are the death penalties in regard to sex and marriage that were bound to them. But the right of divorce for infidelity is expanded and equalized to include women, which is how it was originally designed. The changes were only for the Mosaic period which was added, quote, because of transgressions, unquote. What about sodomy? First note that this was a male-only law as well, Leviticus 18, 20, 13. There was no civil law mentioning lesbian acts. Although surely a sin, it was no crime as was sodomy, and thus there was no penalty, let alone death. This alerts us again that something more than just a homosexual sin was in play. What is that issue? It pertained to the promised seed. There was no greater purpose for the Mosaic Covenant than to guard and protect the promise to Abraham until it came to pass. The most important part of this promise was, of course, the promised seed. In this light, the act of sodomy was not mere sexual perversion, not even merely the height of sexual perversion. It was open defiance of the natural use of sex through which the seed was promised. 
It was a defiance of the created order, but of God's plan of redemption at that time. To engage in sodomy was therefore to deny Christ, and not only to deny Him, but symbolically to attempt to prevent His coming. To engage in sodomy was therefore not just a sexual sin, but an act of blasphemy. The same argument can be made for Onan, who refused to perform the duty of Levirate marriage for Tamar. Genesis 38, 8-10 The Lord punished Onan with death, and the reason for it was directly connected to refusing the seed. And what of bestiality? Unlike same-sex acts, this law specifically applied to both men and women. Exodus 22:19, Leviticus 18, 20, 15 through 16, and Deuteronomy 27:21. And both would receive the death penalty. Interestingly, however, the beast was also assigned the death penalty. This again suggests that there may be more being punished here than a mere sexual decision on the part of the person. What could this be? It seems to me that the same principle as with male sodomy is in play in either case. With a male zoophiliac, the parallel to a sodomite is clear enough. With a woman, the crime lies but in entertaining foreign animal seed. This is as great a defiance of the promised seed as the sodomite act, and thus was to commit blasphemy as well. It is not surprising that bestiality was most commonly found in idolatrous rituals of Canaanite and other ancient religions. While all of these sexual sins, adultery, sodomy, and bestiality, remain abominable sins with the coming of Christ and the abolition of the Old Covenant administration, they can no longer be said to be capital crimes. As revolting as any of them may be, the reasons they were earlier given the death penalty was not merely sexual perversion, but for violating sacred boundaries that at the time were placed under the jurisdiction of the civil government. With these boundaries now removed, the civil government no longer has authority to impose death. In light of this, I have revised my earlier published views that adultery and homosexual sodomy are punishable by the death penalty. There are still, however, sanctions that can be imposed. Divorce is obvious. This is covenantal death of family. It would also possibly have some economic ramifications that would be enforceable by the civil government. Covenantal death from the church would also apply excommunication. I also do not see why local civil governments would not be warranted to punish flagrant cases with loss of citizenship or banishment. Fulfilled and forever. Yet as we have seen, the New Testament also clearly states that God's law continues in the New Testament era. We have also seen the relationship between love and law, as well as the place Jesus gives to the teaching and upholding the law in the kingdom. Jesus said he came to, quote, fulfill, unquote, but not to, quote, abolish, unquote, Matthew 5.17, the law. Some we have now seen were fulfilled and brought to a terminus which were predetermined. These were fulfilled in such a way that we no longer observe their earthly expressions. Others, however, 
He is fulfilled in such a way that their observance is expected and commanded. These he upholds as standards of righteousness, love, and justice. Christians, therefore, need to develop a view of the abiding validity of those standards of the law that still apply. We can develop this view simply by studying the law and excluding those parts that the New Testament teaches no longer continue. When we do this, we arrive at a distinction outlined by earlier Reformed theologians. A second-generation Reformer, Joannes Piscator, related his argument for the abiding validity of the Mosaic judicial laws this way. The magistrate is obliged to those judicial laws which teach concerning matters which are immutable and universally applicable to all nations, but not to those which teach concerning matters which are mutable and peculiar to the Jewish or Israelite nations for the times when those governments remained in existence. He then outlines briefly which is which. Things common to all nations, that is, which befall all, and are immutable with respect to their own nature and merits or moral offenses, that is, against the Decalogue, such as murder, adultery, theft, seduction from the true God, blasphemy, and smiting of parents. Those laws which are mutable and which were peculiar to the Jews for that time are things such as the emancipation of Hebrew slaves in the seventh year, Levirate marriage, releasing of debts in the appointed year, marriage with a woman from one's own tribe, and if there were any other of the same sort. Likewise, these include ceremonial offenses such as a touching a dead body, touching a woman suffering her menstrual cycle, and others of the same sort. As you can see, his distinction is simple. That which is particular to the Jews and that which is general for all nations and people. His applications of that distinction are in line with what we have studied regarding separation laws, Sabbath laws, land laws, etc. Piscator's distinction was picked up by some of the Puritan theologians, such as William Perkins and some of the Westminster divines, George Gillespie among them. They used the traditional legal term, quote, equity, unquote, to describe the application of laws. They then discussed which parts of the law had, quote, particular equity, unquote, applied to Israel only, and those that had, quote, general equity, unquote. They did not all agree on which parts of the law fit into which category, and debate ensued. When the divines finished debating, they settled on a compromise statement that left room for them all to interpret the abiding validity of individual laws however they chose. The Westminster Confession, chapter 19, section 4, says, To them also, as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging under any now further than the general equity thereof may require. This statement leaves it an open question as to exactly what this, quote, general equity, unquote, is and where and how it applies. Many theologians have assumed it to mean some kind of spiritualized, church-only application of these laws, but that any civil or state application of them has expired. 
But this misunderstanding is uniformed of the history behind the term, quote, general equity, unquote. It is unfortunate, in fact, that the companion term, quote, particular equity, unquote, did not make it into the confession, but it does exist, and knowing its history changes the contextual meaning of the confession statement. The, quote, general equity, unquote, is not a spiritualized ecclesiastical application of judicial law, but rather that part of the law that reveals standards of righteousness, love, and justice, not particular to Israel only, but generally applicable to all of mankind, including the civil state and civil justice. The confession was written, however, as a compromise on this point and its vagueness is therefore unhelpful to understanding it. As history has moved on, and the historical context of the language was lost, the prevailing view of our day has moved to impose its narrow, uninformed understanding upon language that was originally written to accommodate a spectrum of views. The point here is not argue over the interpretation of the confession, for scripture is our ultimate standard. The point is to return to Piscator's type of argumentation, which was based squarely on Scripture. That is why I've rehearsed the biblical aspects of discontinuity of the law above. Once we get back to these, we will naturally arrive back at the same distinctions of particular and general applications of the law. We will then read our confessions in that light also. Conclusion we certainly do not have the space to review every law in detail in order to say whether it continues or not. This book is just an introduction, after all. Instead, you now have the categories by which to discern for yourself. Read the law. In each case, ask yourself, does this law or part of it pertain to the old temple rites, calendar, priesthood, sacrifices, etc.? Does this law pertain to the old land boundaries? Does it pertain to the bloodline separations or seed laws? Does it pertain to any of those aspects of the old covenant administration that the New Testament demonstrates changed with Jesus? Does it pertain to first table offenses, special devotion to destruction, or stoning penalties? If so, that law or part of a law has vanished away. If not, then you can safely assume that law expresses an abiding principle of righteousness, love, and justice. It will have applications to individuals, families, churches, and possibly even state, assuming it is a state-focused law to begin with. You need to start studying it in this light, asking questions, having discussions, and applying it where you can. In doing so, you will be using the law lawfully. 1 Timothy 1.8 I would, however, like to address a matter over which the Puritans and divines were divided, the penal sanctions of the judicial laws. In the next chapter, I will give you my argument for why the penal sanctions, excepting, of course, the ones already discussed, as discontinued in this chapter, are an aspect of the general equity and remain obligatory for civil governments today.